We wasn't talking to you. Yes, we was, Precious. We was. Call him left theology, Precious. Call him. Call him. Is it fat? Is it juicy? Oh, yes, my dear friends. Even Gollum loves listening to the host, Eucharistic and hipster talk. Here we go with the Caleb and Magic Show. Give it to me. Gollum wants to see the host, Precious. Gollum loves the host. We wasn't talking to you. Yes, we was, Precious. Hello, Caleb. What's up? Hey, Deacon Maverick. Nothing Deacon much. Magic. It's Deacon Deacon, Magic. I'm sorry, Deacon Magic. Um, He's even got the Harry Potter glasses on, folks. That's how much, how badly he wants to be called Deacon And this is, this is the whole crux of light. Dun, dun. <laughs> wait, wait. Now that we're on here, I gotta show my horcrux. Hang on a minute. He's actually getting it. Oh my goodness! Um, my, mine, mine is big enough for Rubius Hagrid. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's uh, my uh, my dragonfire rosary made out of uh, lava beads. Yours, yours is yours follows the Benedictine pattern. That's a Benedictine crucifix, right? I, yeah, it's a Benedictine crucifix. Yeah. Okay, mine too. Traditional trad. Yeah, the Rosary. one that I'm yeah. the one that I'm getting um, is actually a combination of the Franciscan and um, Benedictine. That's the one our mutual yeah. friend made, right? Yep, 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 yep. Yeah. So this one here, so I added this to it. Tam didn't add that one. I had this one for my old rosary. That's a yeah. uh, St. Patrick medallion and uh, so, Saint Bridget on the back. So. so I actually have two medallions on this one. Um, it came with the Saint Michael medallion, and um, I added. Uh, Marian Queen of Heaven medallion. So yeah, but that's you know idolatry, Caleb. How dare you do oh, that? Oh yes, I yeah. know. I think so yeah. Idolatry. So I mean no, yeah. Um, no, it's not idolatry for those of you watching. Yeah, we're just joking. We uh, like messing around with that kind of thing. So um, today we're gonna have a bit of an interesting. Um, episode because we're actually recording and people are going to see our faces when this gets uploaded to uh, YouTube. Um, so, I mean, 
the the reason I, I wanted to do this, um, and you know, I asked for my partner in crime because I released a, a monologue episode where Caleb wasn't on that, and that was just based on so many of the requests I had for people wanting to understand what Orthodox Christians do with Romans nine, and um, you know, do we just ignore it and we like blah 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 and throw a Stephen Anderson well no we don't um, we actually do take Romans 9 seriously but we just don't interpret it um, in the way that predestinarians do like Augustinians and Calvinists right and the one thing I would also say in contrast to that is we don't make Romans 9 a centerpiece of soteriology like our uh, Calvinist friends would do um, we actually interpret Romans 9 in a broader, more bigger narrative theological scope of Scripture itself. Um, it's not this centerpiece on, part, on which everything in the New Testament and Old Testament revolves around Romans 9. Uh, it's more of like Romans 9 is, is a piece to the puzzle, so to speak, a piece of the bigger picture. Yeah. And it's very important to understand that for us, our theology of predestination and salvation, divine election, it's all a consequence of a conciliar, um, apostolic, sineodal position, that this isn't the theology of one man. And I think that's the problem with most Western Christians, is that for them, theology is defined by Augustinianism, by St. Augustine, by um, Anselm and Aquinas. Um, I mean, I just can't get myself to put St. in front of the names. Um, <laughs> so I, yeah. I could put St. in front of Aquinas, but not, probably not in front of Anselm. Um, but not, not necessarily because of yeah. Aquinas' certain views on the Eucharist or predestination, but mainly yeah. for his defense of God. Uh, I think his defense of the existence of God is brilliant. I would, but, um, I, I would call, uh, I would usually refer to um, Aquinas as Dr. Aquinas because I do believe that he's a doctor of the church. So, oh, um, yeah, and I think we're going to see it yeah. in eternity. I so, I mean, yeah. God yeah, I, we'll see it in eternity. He was mistaken on a few things, but... Uh, so um, I, I have this um, slide that I prepared. Um, yeah, and I have the article pulled up too, by the way. So I okay. hope I can follow along with you. So you have that article. Now, before we're going to go to the article, there was a guy, his name is Ravik. Um, Ravik. Yep. Um, I can't pronounce his surname. I'm not, I don't want to disrespect him. So we're going to just, just refer him to as Ravik or that guy. If I say that guy, I apologize. Um, <laughs> uh, that's yeah. just the way that I speak. But Ravik uh, was very gracious. You know, I'm glad that he posted the article. I'm not so crazy about the way that he uh, interpreted my position because I may have not been as clear as I thought I, I should have been like the, the idea of corporate election. He seems to think that I believe in individual election. Um, and certainly those things are there. Um, individual and corporate election, they're all elements of that view of election. But yeah, th th those are some things that I think we need to, we need to realize that this is multifaceted and um, multi-layered too. Yeah. And the, the the thing that was frustrating, though, is that I think he assumed a lot of things that he thought that I agree with him on, because many times you're going to hear him say um, that I'm I'm basing election on some on merit in the person of the individual. And to an Orthodox Christian, that's strange. 
I don't think faith is meritorious. I don't think obedience is meritorious for that matter. Um, cooperating with God's grace is simply receiving and being responsible with the grace given. That's not merit. And yeah. we just don't think that way. Um, right. And the other thing I would point out to folks who are not as familiar with Eastern Orthodox theology is that cooperating with God's grace um, is, the, is natural. For us, because for us, we believe man was created not only in the image of God, but was created to be in the likeness of God, which man uh, has to cooperate with God's grace. That is what he created man to do, right? Mm -hmm. That is part of the, I tell people this, that God intentionally created mankind with a hole in his heart, not a, not a void, not like you're a heartless person. But there's a hole that has to be filled, and it's only big enough to be filled by God himself. And that, that's that longing that we look for when we seek after God. And sometimes we try to fill, fill it with wrong things like a false religion, um, drugs, sex, whatever it is we want to fill that yeah. hole with. We'll never fill it up. This is sort of uh, just to kind of pay some good lip service to Augustine. Um, about our hearts being restless until it finds our rest in him. Amen. Um, actually a very Eastern uh, understanding of this. So the idea for us that cooperation with God is meritorious or works does not make any sense to us because that is what God has always created us to do. You know, yeah, and I mean, I mean, when, when, when Calvinists and Lutherans, when they say things like, do you believe in works righteousness? I mean, I, I cannot even begin to understand what that even means from our perspective. It's like, what? Um, it, yeah. It's sort of an absurd question because if what they are, what they believe about works righteousness is true, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to say I believe it. It's like, right? Uh, no, I don't believe your entire system. <laughs> yeah. So, so like I like I told Caleb, trying to use a reformed Augustinian Western paradigm to refute us is like trying to is like a dog barking over at. Chinese party with people who speak Russian. Um, it, it's just, it, you, is that they, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's that bad. Um, and this is, and I, I mean, and if Ravik, if you listening to this, watching this, um, I hope that you understand that this is not meant uh, in a, and this is not meant with animosity or wrath, but it's actually meant with um, the heart to make you understand what orthodox teaching is and what it is not. Right. And to put this into another perspective, uh, whenever a Western Christian, be it Protestant or Catholic, was, is to ask an orthodox Christian, like, for example, you know, well, what do you believe about justification? Well, here's the problem is that Orthodox theology, as we've pointed out multiple times in our podcast, really doesn't have a doctrine of justification. Um, we can try to explain it in terms of justification, but it really doesn't fit that well. It's mm -hmm. like, it's like um, if, you, if, you, uh, if you have a, a car and you want somebody to examine your car, well, the most qualified person to examine your car accurately would be a mechanic, right? Mm -hmm. Well, Imagine if somebody wanted to examine this car you put before them. It's like, hmm, before I buy it, I'd like to have someone I know look at it. And you say, sure, no problem. So instead of taking it to the mechanic who is qualified and understands how a car works, um, he takes it to a plumber <laughs> to look at it. <laughs> that's, 
that's yeah. what it looks like for us as Orthodox Christians when mm -hmm. Westerners take our theology and try to assess it. It's like the plumber, plumber trying to examine your car. Um, no, take it to the mechanic, or at least read a mechanic's manual before you attempt to do so, because you're going to get it wrong every time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start. I'm going to share my screen. Um, so let's just get to this. So the screen is sharing now. So I'm going to go through the slides here, and I got uh, two of two favorite saints: um, Saint Maximus the Confessor and Saint Patrick. <laughs> So um, I'm actually gonna gonna pray before I go through this. So, um, uh, dear Father, help us explain truth correctly in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Saint Maximus, confessor, please pray for us. Saint Patrick, please pray for us. Pray for us. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us. Amen. Amen. So. I entitled this Divine Election and Orthodoxy, and as you can see, this is supposed to be an icon of Nicaea. Um, I'm not sure, but I did a Google search, and um, as you can see, there are lay people, bishops, and different and Christians in this. Yeah, and the point of this is just to make you realize that my position is not my own position. I didn't make this up. This is the teaching of the conciliar, synodal, Orthodox Apostolic Catholic Church. This is the deposit of the apostles. This is what has been believed in everywhere at all times by the church. This is not novel. So this. So if you want to say that my view is wrong, fight with John Chrysostom, blessed John Chrysostom, fight with Maximus Confessor, fight with every saint in the first few centuries of the church. Your fight right. is with them, not with me. So it's very important to understand what we are speaking about. We are speaking about election. And the, the first thing to understand is that Christ is the elect one. When you, need, when you understand what election is about, Christ is the one whom God has chosen. Christ is the, the greater Isaac, so to speak. He is the seed. And that's why Paul can say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his presence. Uh, in love, he predestined us uh, for the adoption as his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the pleasure of his will. So you need to understand that he is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world and that all who are in him, Jesus is the vehicle. Jesus is the true Israelite, and he is the one that determines who is chosen by God. So it is not so much that God looks uh, and he sees it as, uh, like picks people randomly or arbitrarily. I know Calvinists say they don't believe that, but it's not as though he chooses people mysteriously or unconditionally. But Jesus is the one God has chosen, and the destiny of Jesus, um, our destiny becomes his destiny by faith. Right. And then the second point to, to point out is that Israel is the corporate elect body, and by faith we become part of that elect body. That's Deuteronomy 4.37 and 7 verse 6 to 8. Now we also need to understand, though, that being part of the ethnic elect people does not mean that one is regenerate internally. The remnant are those true spiritual and eschatologically elect people. So this is the remnant. So and this you'll is see where we would uh, cross paths with our 
federal vision friends a little bit, right? Yeah, um, and we will make a distinction um, not between visible and invisible church, but between uh, the uh, historical and eschatological church. So um, it, it's important to point out here that ethnic Israel is elect, that's corp, a corporate election, but there's a different corporate election where we're speaking about the remnant who out of those people are actually the ones that persevere or are actually regenerate because God says in Deuteronomy 30, um, I think it's verse 6, he says, I will circumcise your heart. Um, right. simply, simply being a member of the Israelite people does not mean that you will be one of the born-again, spiritually, eschatological people, you know? Yeah, King Saul, Ahab, you know, Manasseh, others like that who were part of the corporate election of Israel, but at the end of the day were apostates and were idolaters and wicked men, you know? And that's the trajectory that you see in Romans 9, Romans 9 verse 6. It is not all Israel who'd, all, uh, all uh, Israel that descend from Israel. Um, you know, not every single person who's ethnically Israel is um, necessarily part of the eschatological people of God. And Paul speaks about this. He goes throughout Romans and Galatians speaking about we are the righteous, justified people of God by faith, not by uh, works of the law, covenant participation in the, you know, by keeping the Sabbath, by being circumcised, things like that. So that's a very important right. thing to understand, because yeah. if you if you mess this part up, you're not going to understand our doctrine of election. It's, it's another in other words, God gives us this new identity completely of his grace, completely free of charge and apart from any works of the law. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's Just important to know that. Yeah. So it's very important to understand uh, Qumran, that in Qumran, works of the law had to do what people called halacha. And halacha was the, spirit, the way you interpreted the law and the, the certain rights that made you a part of that covenant community. Um, and right. Paul is saying it's not by Sabbath keeping. It's not by uncircumcision. It's not by those things, because you're going to hear in Romans 9, that Paul's going to say, it does not depend on the man who walls or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. In other words, right. God's mercy is determinative of who is in the people of God, not works of the law, which isn't any works. It's referring specifically to covenant rights that make you part of the people of God. In other and, words, uh, Old Testament rights, like God is not saying do these rights and then I'll give you this new identity as my covenant people. He's like, no, here's your new identity as a covenant people, but this new identity has responsibilities which you are obligated to fulfill. And N.T. Right. Wright does a, does a great job in his book, uh, Justification, God's Plan and Paul's Vision, to try right. and show you this is what it means to be part shelf. of. Oh, yeah, I, I finished that. And, wow, it's almost like that's almost, that's like three years ago, man, I'm if on the not very more. Last um, and I would also recommend his amazing commentary on this. I, I can't say that I speak for everything he says, but it's very helpful to understand what we are saying here. Yeah. So then it's very important to understand also that if you want to understand election in orthodoxy, you must understand theosis and justification. Um, justification, there is no systematic orthodox doctrine of justification, but there is a systematic doctrine of theosis. And justification is simply part of that bigger 
um, you know, system of theosis. I don't even call it a system because in Protestantism, salvation is, uh, you know, how, how can I put this? It's formulaic, but we don't have a formula. Uh, it's, yeah, we don't it's, have an ordo salutis like the uh, Protestants have. Yeah, it's like, you know, do this and this and this, and, you know, then you save, receive this. and It doesn't work like that in orthodoxy. It isn't one size fits, you know, how do they say it? Um, you know, fits all. I mean, it's not like that. Justification is to us not a forensic act where God declares someone merely righteous, but it's actually God making you righteous. Justification deals with who are God's people, who are part of God's righteous family. Justification is also about how God makes us righteous, how through baptism and a faith working through love, he begins to change, uh, change us so that we can become God. Now, that right. become God might shock some people. Are you speaking about apotheosis, that we actually become God in our essence? You know, I mean, like what Mormons teach, Caleb is going to have a planet, I'm going to have a planet... Uh, no, it's referring to, and maybe Caleb can explain what that means. Um, we start to partake in the uncreated energies of God. So yeah. what does that mean, Caleb? Okay, so yeah, a couple of things. I'm glad you brought this up. Uh, to, to our friend who wrote the article we're responding to now, uh, if you're listening, uh, two things you really need to understand before you approach Orthodox Theology is firstly that we do not have, we don't believe in penal substitutionary atonement. It just does not exist in Orthodox theology. And we don't therefore believe in original sin either um, because penal substitution is the natural consequence of believing in original sin. Um, so, and it's never been present in the Eastern church. And before you say, oh, you're rejecting what's always been believed by Christians. No, um, there are literally 300 million Christians worldwide who reject this theology, whose communions have pre-existed both the Reformation and the Great Schism and the Roman Catholic Pontiff as it stands today. So this is, again, not a new doctrine. Penal substitution and original sin are really the newcomers at the end of the day, even though original sin does have some, uh, some I would say some early church father roots like in Cyprian, for example. But theosis, Theosis is not apotheosis, such as what uh, the Mormons would say, such as what uh, the Greco-Roman pagans would say, where a person literally becomes a divine being, where they become an ontological god um, who has power over the elements and has their own planets, uh, people worship them, etc. I mean, the Romans actually worshiped the emperors as gods. Uh, Julius, Julius Caesar was a... Was a apotheosatized, if that's even a word, um, after he died uh, by the Senate and worshipped as a god. Um, now, did he want that done to him? I don't think so, at least from what I can tell. But nonetheless, that's something they used to do. Um, theosis is the process by which we become like God. Now, what does that mean? It's not just a change <clears throat> in behavior. It's not a, cha a change in disposition towards God, which is what Protestants would call sanctification. Uh, this is an ontological change in the person, uh, what Paul, when Paul would say, for example, you are a new creature in Christ, right? Um, that you are changed from a fallen human being who has been cut off from God to a redeemed human being who is then reconnected with God the Father, 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens in this process of theosis, which begins at baptism and continues until the day you die and is fully consummated at the resurrection of the dead, which is what we say in the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, um, this is where we partake in God's uncreated energies. That's another thing that's different from orthodoxy uh, in regards to Protestantism and Catholicism, is that we believe things like grace and righteousness, uh, the image of God, etc., are not created things. Like, God didn't say one day, hmm, I'm going to create some grace. Hmm, I'm going to create some righteousness. No, these are basically things which emanate from God that are God, but are not holistically God, if that makes sense. Um, the best analogy I can think of is like you have the sun, and out of the sun comes heat and light. That's because that's what the sun is and what the sun does. Um, God is love, and therefore, and I don't really like using this phrase, but he can't help but love, right? Because he is love, right? Mm -hmm. And so we would even say love is an uncreated energy of God. Um, so therefore, man is not in competition with, for glory of God. Um, what I think is awesome about orthodoxy is that God actually wants to share his glory with mankind. Um, yeah. If you've ever heard the, the hymn written by a Methodist pastor called The Old Rugged Cross, I love that song. Um, one of the last verses of the song, it says, And he shall call me someday to my home far away where his glory forever I will share. Um, you don't find that too much in Protestant theology, especially in Lutheran or Calvinism. And so what it, the analogy I could say of theosis is this. You have, like, you have some fertile soil on the ground in a garden somewhere, right? And the soil has nutrients, it has water, it has everything needed to sustain plant life, okay? And so imagine the human being as a plant, right? You plant the, the plant into the soil, the soil's roots suck up the nutrients and the water, and the soil's nutrients and water begins flowing through the veins and through the, uh, the system of the plant. If you were to take a piece of this plant and look at it under a microscope, you could see that the same nutrients and water that's in the soil are also in the plant, right? Now, the plant has not become the life-giving ontological soil, but the life-giving ontological soil's energies is flowing and giving life to the plant itself. We are intimately connected and plugged in to the soil, so to speak, that has now become a part of our life and a part of not of our ontological nature, but our, what the Eastern Church would call the likeness of God, right? Not the, yeah. it's, not part of our, it's not part of our ontological nature, but part of the likeness of God, um, is yeah. that we are in, fully in sync with God. This is why the hypostatic union, understanding Jesus' incarnation is so important, is because what he is as, uh, as God and what he is as man is fully connected together, and they are in perfect harmony with each other. They're not in competition, and they're not trying to one-up each other. The two natures of Christ are in perfect harmony, and that is why uh, 
of patristic orthodox synergism is so incarnational is because of who Jesus is, is what we will be also. So I hope that makes sense. <laughs> oh yeah. Awesome. So yeah, that, so it leads me to the second point because this is where I touch a bit on Romans nine. Paul's issue in Romans nine is about God's chosen people who in fact, the people who, um, who are in fact the people who have been justified and how, I just need to get this out of the way, and how it is that many of them do not believe and have been cut off temporarily hardened, both corporately and individually. So um, I have a uh, Brian Apciano who was the, uh, he's a Protestant. He has some, uh, a great paper on this where he responds to, to Thomas Schreiner and um, Apciano has a very um, good way of portraying this, but I, I read Thomas Schreiner's response to, to this paper and it was somewhat disappointing because I don't think he really understands the position that he's critiquing. And I, I don't want to say this, but it's, I've seen that with many Calvinists. Um, they simply dismiss anything that isn't Calvinism. Now, I don't want to make a blanket statement, yeah. but this seems to be the opinion. And something that Brian Apciano states is, is that something Schreiner concedes is that most New Testament scholars today do not find the, um, the exegesis of Calvinism to be convincing. It's dismissed as being anachronistic, um, so on and so forth. But Apciano states that the point of Isaac's election in the passage Paul quotes is that the seed of Abraham, the elect covenant people, would be named, identified by connection to Isaac. Individuals would be regarded as part of the covenant people based on their relationship to Isaac. Paul interrupts this to mean that only the children of the promise are regarded as seed, that is, as the chosen people of God. Now, I want to quote uh, Galatians 3.6 here because this is, again, the way you should be understanding the, 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 the relationship between Christ's election and those who are in him. Chosen, um, we are chosen in him. Brothers, let me put this in human terms. Even a human covenant, once it is ratified, cannot be cancelled or amended. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many, but and to your seed, meaning one who is Christ. What I mean is this, the Lord that came 430 years later does not revoke the covenant previously established by God so as to nullify the promise. So yes, there's the point. Those who relate themselves to the seed are those who are elect. It's important to understand that the scripture doesn't say and to seeds. It's not that like elect is like, oh, you, 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 not you, you, you. N no. If, if you understand election, you need to understand this paradigm about how people are justified. People come to be justified because of their relation to the Isaac figure, to Jesus, who is the seed, according to Galatians 3.6. So when we are elect, it is by virtue of faith in Christ, the seed. Our destiny is therefore Christ's destiny. As long as we stay on the boat by faith, all spiritual blessings belong to us. Christ is the elect one who uh, becomes, I did it, that's a typo, who becomes elect and justified by virtue of our pistis in him. Pistis is a, the Greek word for um, faith. So that's, imp that's important. We become part of the corporate elect people of God because we are united to the elect one. 
So we are the elect ones. And very, very important, Apsiano mentions this, is that every didactic election passage that mentions salvation always does this corporately. It's always corporate. Um, and so yes, yes, something to make you understand something of how this works, because Romans 9 is a part of a larger context. So this is how you should understand the elect. Ethnic Israel, only the, the remnant of ethnic Israel are eschatological Israel, the elect. And only those who, are, who trust in Jesus by faith are engrafted into uh, Israel. So Israel equals the church. It's not replacement theology. Please don't misunderstand that. Um, it, it says that the true one people of God is a mixture of ethnic Israel and ethnic believing Gentiles. And that's why we can say we have been grafted into the one olive branch and we've become part of the common inheritance. We have become part of the chosen people by faith. And before you say this is a nameless and faceless group, remember election takes place by our relationship to the elect one, the seed, the Isaac child, Jesus. So it's it's not a hard thing to understand. It's quite straightforward. And Galatians 3.8 also says this, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before and to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. Uh, John Chrysostom um, has a very, very uh, cool uh, comment here. He says, for since they were perturbed by the greater antiquity of the law and the fact that faith came after the law, he destroys the surmise of theirs, showing that faith is older than the law. That is obvious from Abraham, since he was justified before the appearance of the law. The one who gave the law, he says, in effect, was the one who decreed before the law was given that the Gentiles should be justified. And Paul does not say um, revealed, but preached the gospel so that you may understand that even the patriarch rejoiced in this kind of righteousness and greatly desired its advent. So there's a, there's a sense in which um, even um, Abraham foresees this engrafting. And that's part of the argument about um, uh, Romans 9. Now, I'm just going to go through some of this. Ephesians 2, verse 11 to 13. Um, it says that that we have been, that we have been, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath as ordained that we should walk in them. So election is not only that we are elected for salvation, but it's part of a broader schema so that we would be one's working good work so that we would be serving the nations we become a blessing to the nations in that we the elect group of people would preach the gospel and share with them the oracles of god and so it's election not only to salvation but election to salvation to service you, you can't mess that up um and and the, he goes on in this. He says, at that time you was out Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you were once far off, made near by the blood of Christ. So that's where I stopped, um, and I'm going to just stop the share here. So now we can actually argue, um, deal with the actual. Um, yeah, you know, I'll just deal with that. So. Yeah, I, I mean, do you want to, 
Yeah, so I mean, I, I, I don't think we're going to... So, so here's the first frustration I have. He says, he calls me an Orthodox Anglican Catholic. I'm okay, but that kind of is a misleading title because it's uh, an amalgamation of all sorts of things. Um, I am a Western Rite Orthodox Christian that yeah, happens to worship... Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Maybe you should. Maybe we should clarify to. Uh, I'm sorry. I have a hard time pronouncing his name. Rovic. Rovic. Rovic yeah. We need to clarify exactly what we are to use you for next time. If you care to make a response to this video, you need to at least get our tradition right. We are Western Rite Orthodox Christians. What is that? Shortly, and short, it means this. We are Orthodox in what you would see in the Eastern Orthodox Church. It's just that our patrimony and our rite, our liturgy, is based on the Western tradition rather than the Eastern tradition, meaning the Byzantine, the Greek, the Syriac rite, the Russian rite are all Eastern traditions, whereas we follow either the Gregorian rite or the Latin rite or even the Book of Common Prayers Anglican Rite. Um, so that's the, it's really just a difference in aesthetics and a different in culture. We all share the yeah. same theology. We are Orthodox, period, full stop. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I'm not sure how you want to do this. I'm not going to read everything, but he goes on to say that he met me online. And um, yes, I did say that total depravity is a heresy and maybe uh, we can do an episode on that later. Um, I am a former Calvinist, and just so that there's no ambiguity about this, um, I actually read the Calvinist Dutch Reformed writings in Dutch, not English. So before, he's going to make the claim that I was, wasn't really a Calvinist, and I'm just going to say, Rovik, the reason I'm no longer a Calvinist is because I changed my mind. That's all there is. You don't need to assert that I was never really a Calvinist because I make the objections that I make, but the reason that I'm no longer in there should give you a, an idea about why I made that change. And I was a Calvinist for, I mean, most of my, ever since I was baptized, um, which was, I mean, 10 years ago. I mean, I was 15. Um, I'm 25 now. But um, yeah, I think he, he may be the same age as you, I think. But um, so as me or you? You, 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 you. Oh, so he's in his 30s. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm also a former Calvinist. Um, I would say I was sort of a partly Calvinist in the year 2013. I became full Calvinist in 2015, and then that crumbled away around 2018. I just couldn't find myself being able to justify it anymore. But that's actually one of the biggest frustrations I have with those in the Calvinist camp is when they say to people who were formerly Calvinist, oh, you were never a Calvinist to begin with, or you were never Reformed to begin with, otherwise you wouldn't have left Reformed theology. That is, that is completely disingenuous and dishonest, first of all. Yeah. Um, first of all, how in the world do you prove somebody was never a Calvinist? You can't. Basically, you have to say, I know the person's personal experiences and personal thoughts better than that person does, okay? And how do you prove that? You can't. You're simply, you simply cannot take the fact that somebody honestly looked at your system and found it to be lacking. Um, now, are there people who don't understand Calvinism who leave Calvinism for another idea? Sure. There are people who uh, don't understand Catholic or Orthodox theology and think they do and leave it to become Calvinists. 
Um, I'm perfectly fine with admitting there are Orthodox people who understood Orthodoxy well and became Protestants. It's a shame that they do. Um, but, you know, but I don't, I don't try to make them out to be liars or dishonest. Yeah. By they never understood it. And that's what you're doing, uh, Robic. When you accuse somebody like that, you're basically calling them liars. And I find that just completely deplorable. <laughs> And um, so I'm going to start off, um, like, uh, I mean, thank you, Rovic, for giving us a basis to be able to respond to the Calvinistic world. Uh, I'm sure that, I, I mean, I'm not sure that we're going to make more videos or podcast episodes like this uh, to respond to you because we just we just can't do that. I, I have a job, Caleb has a job, and we try to do this um, outside of that time when time permits. But uh, so the thing is, he goes on and, you know, he says uh, that it's a 27-minute monologue in which Reverend Whitlow offers his two cents on the meaning and the orthodox interpretation of the passage in question, uh, Romans 9. Um, so yeah, now what I want to go to is he said, in the said podcast episode, Reverend Whitlow asserts that the point of the passage is that God's election of people unto salvation is actually based on four mm-hmm. foreseen faith, striving, obedience, etc. Okay, so I want to want to back up because I, I don't think that he really understands because it seems like based on his response that I am choosing an Arminian, you know, the Arminian individual election on forcing faith. I don't think you caught the fact that I made it a corporate election. You need to understand that corporate element that um, it's based on the relationship of the Gentiles by faith to the Jews that become part of this corporate people. And then I, I know I didn't I didn't emphasize this a lot, but I assume that, you know, you understood where I, where I came from. I make this clear on my other episodes, but um, Christ is the elect one. So, yes, there's an element of God foreseeing that we will believe, but that's only because we are in Christ. We are chosen in him. And that needs to be noticed that I always speak about it as a group of people, not just one person being chosen by faith. Around 11.17, he begins to say, those whom God has foreknown as believers, those are the ones whom God has the right to see as his own people. Correct. And again, around 12 minutes onwards, God has ordained the believing people, people who are faithful people, people who are striving people, people who are an obedient people, a covenant faithful people, are people who are connected to God by means of faith. That's the point. Now, I want to get to what he says here because this kind of made me smirk. To me, this is an entirely strange reading of Romans 9 because here Paul refutes at every turn the very idea that the elect have any virtue to offer by which God is moved to be merciful to them. The point of the passage isn't that God has seen some virtue on on certain human beings in order to save them. This is precisely the mindset underlying the sinful pride amongst the Jews who believed that they were favored due to some sort of merit of their own. Ethical, ethnical right, lineage, law-keeping. On the contrary, the, passage, uh, the point of the passage, as we shall see, is to remove any cause and ground for human boasting by putting the cause of human salvation in God's free choice according to his sovereign mercy. Stop. Yeah, stop. Why? Stop Why? Um, I, I cannot even begin to understand how face-palmingly ridiculous that sentiment is. And here's why. You have asserted this is the point of the passage. Firstly, you assume that 
faith is meritorious. You assume that faithfulness is meritorious. You, 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 assume, you seem to think all of those things are meritorious, and my question is why? Also, the very idea that the elect have any virtue to offer by which God is moved to be merciful to them. When did we ever say that? Uh, here's why I just scratch my growing beard hairs. And I, I cannot begin to explain the frustration I have with this because because he's going to say later on um, it, that justification and election is not the same thing. But here he's saying it's about salvation. So, Rovic, which is it? And also, why do you seem to think that I believe in meritorious election? No, I believe that all who by faith come are also the striving, obedient people, because you can't have those things without faith, are connected to Jesus. The relationship to Isaac, as we've said before, okay, is the point of how you come to be in, um, in the elect body of people. And again, law keeping, you know, ethical bondage, but I mean, I, I, need, I need to go on. Yeah, well, let me, let me point yeah. something out to Rovic here. Rovic, you're stuck in the Augustinian paradigm, my friend. You are neck deep in Augustinian quicksand, if, that's, if, if you'll allow me to put it that way. What you're doing here is you're trying to interpret Deacon Maverick's podcast as if he is an Arminian. And here, I got, I got a newsflash for you, bud. Arminianism is Augustinianism. It is from the Augustinian camp, okay? It's like, so here's, and here's another newsflash. Orthodoxy is not Augustinian. It's just not. So if you're going to accurately attempt to refute Deacon Maverick, you need to look at this whole thing from a non-Augustinian point of view and then prove why the Augustinian view is the right lens by which to read Romans 9. Because in the Augustinian view, justification is always meritorious. In ours, it is not. It's organic. It's holistic. It's natural. Yours is the whole courtroom thing, bud. It's ontological. It is transforming. It's participationary. Um, yes. And the, the, what I would say to that is that he's begging the question by attacking or, or by attacking your your uh, your podcast here. He's begging I mean, the question that Augustinianism is true. So I mean, I, I'm going to go on with this because. Yeah. So he says, Paul is you're seeking to justify, and this is one of the few points Reverend Whitlow got right. How could he, how, how he could assert, uh, assert in Romans 8, verse 29 to 39, that all whom God has chosen will be glorified and kept secure. In fact, Israel herself, the chosen nation of God, remains pervasively obstinate towards the gospel. Has God turned his back on Israel? Then, okay, he, he's got this right, okay? So there's no problem there. But he says, um, so he says, in other words, just because you belong to Israel by ethnic affiliation, children of the flesh, doesn't mean that you also belong to the true Israel of God, chosen unto salvation. Uh, for Paul's first proof for this is God's preference of Isaac over Ishmael. Both were the two sons of Abraham, uh, Ishmael, the covenant of the two, technically had a strong claim for legal right over Abraham's inheritance. What's the difference? The promise. Okay, he's right on you. No disagreement. Yes. None. Yeah. But... 
It, now comes the not-so-good part. The word promise connotes an event that happens by God's power, such as when Abraham miraculously bore Isaac despite of old age, according to God's promise. Isaac uh, wasn't born a child of promise because of any effort on Abraham's part. Abraham simply believed and patiently uh, waited for its uh, fulfillment. Pardon me, but as the English educator, I really had to grind my teeth. I'm not trying to make fun of anybody here, but Abraham bore Isaac. I'm sorry, but Abraham's a male. He doesn't bear Isaac. He sires Isaac. I mean, I mean, I mean, we. I'm sorry. I'm not meaning to make fun, but that's a really weird word. So I mean, but 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 the same same. So here's where it's getting getting really bad. Now, yeah. was it because Isaac was foreseen to be faithful or holy that he was a, born a child of promise? My first question is, so what? That, so again, what? either that? you misinterpreting what I said, you don't understand corporate election. Um, again, maybe this is my fault, but nope, such a suggestion would be absurd and illogical. Remember that Isaac's birth is itself the promise. Okay, remember, you become elect by virtue of the faith and your relationship to Isaac, your relationship to Jesus. So it doesn't matter if all these things are true about Isaac. That's not what corporate election is. Isaac is Isaac refers to the archetype, Jesus, and by consequence, those who join themselves to him. So it's absolutely ridiculous that you're trying to say um you know well isaac was was chosen by god yes isaac was chosen by god but we have been chosen in him this is a core predilection um yeah i, I mean right. i take full responsibility if i didn't make this more clearer but then again i was speaking to specific people in orthodoxy in anglo-catholicism who already believe these things so they would have understood what i meant yeah, we don't have to make all the qualifiers for them because they understand this, but for so, Calvinist so, friends, we do. So he goes goes on here and he says, on the contrary, Isaac's birth, which is the promise, had been foreordained without any consideration of any foreknowledge of Isaac's future actions. Um, I mean, I'm not sure how you prove that, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, sure, we can say it's not the determining factor, but to say that just because God preordain something before it happens doesn't mean that what happens in Isaac's life is irrelevant. You... This, is a, this is another intrinsic problem here, Deacon Maverick, is that in the Western tradition, uh, we have uh, our, our Western brethren who sort of look at God's understanding of time in a linear fashion. You know, mm -hmm. this is very problematic because, again, in orthodoxy, we don't think of God as looking at time in a linear fashion that he's here in the present but he's going to jump ahead to the future and look at things or he's going to go back to the past and look at things no we believe god is in the past present and future all at once yeah try, try meditating on that for a bit it'll hurt your head you know so this idea of foreseeing faith and foreseeing it th these terms in some cases are very irrelevant for orthodoxy and especially in understanding of time and I mean, the reason why I pointed out that God foreknows a believing people, I, I, I didn't say God foreknows 
that you believe. That's a true statement. But that's not what I said. There's a reason why I said yeah. God foreknows a, a, a believing people because James White and many Calvinists would say though that, that, that it is a people that God foreknows and not their actions. Completely right. That's why I said what I said. But it wasn't because of merit or someone taking credit for it. And here's the other thing. If you do believe that faith is uh, what causes you to become part of the elective God, I'm not sure how you could take credit of it anyway. Because right. whenever, whenever faith is spoken about, I hate to break it to you, it's never on the part of works of the law. Faith is always in contrast to works of the law. It's always, it's cooperating with God's grace, i.e., that's what faith actually is. Um, noetic participation in God is completely, it's not a selfish thing that you can take credit for. I mean, yeah, how I mean, world, yeah. I mean, mamma mia, why do you do it to me? Um, I, and, and the point is here, being among the child of promise depends solely on God's sovereign choice and operation alone. Again, oh, here comes you, Jacob and Esau, the next passage I'm already seeing. Oh, boy. Uh, do you want to read it? Um, just sure. read whatever part. Uh, okay. you, you, <laughs> All right, so he's going to jump to the Jacob and Esau example, which is the one Calvinists really like to quote. He says, as if Isaac's example wasn't enough, Paul immediately followed up with another illustration from God's sovereign choice of Jacob over Esau. Now, these weren't just ordinary siblings. They were twins. And Paul says that God has made his choice of Jacob over Esau when the children were not yet being born, nor having done anything good or evil, to what end? That the purpose of, God's according, uh, according to, purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Okay, well, here's the thing. Calvinists always interpret this passage where it says, not yet being born or not having done anything good or evil. Okay, you could interpret that in the Calvinist paradigm and say that, oh, God didn't base it on anything they would do in the future. But... At the same time, you could also read this as simple foreknowledge. Because here's the thing. Yeah. God, we live in time God does not, right? Or at least in one sense, he does not, right? And so it's like, yeah. So ordaining somebody based on their, on their foreseen faith before they do anything still fits here. There's no reason why it doesn't, right? Because they had not done anything good or bad. If God foresees that in their time, they have not done so. So I'm just saying you could read that both ways. So I mean, but. so I mean, he he goes on and he and he and he says, "Does God hate people? Nope. God is love. We ought not to compare the emotions of men yeah, with the emotions you, yeah. of God. Divine hatred and wrath is the love of God as as it disposes itself against sin." Now, before I get into it, now in the polymistic sense, and I'm not speaking of Thomistic divine simplicity, but the, God is a simple being. Okay, he is. God's hatred and his love, you can't think of it as two different things. When right. we speak about God's love, and he says, and, and yeah, I need to quote him because it's very important because I'm going to show you he doesn't understand. He seems to think that what I'm speaking about is the same thing Reformed people speak about. Essentially, right. I agree with the observation. Divine hatred, which, by the way, is directed not only against sin, but also against the sinner, Psalm 4, verse 5 to 4 to 5, should not be taken as univocal to how human beings feel hatred towards one another. As Reverend Whitlow correctly suggests, divine hatred and wrath is God's love for his own holiness that naturally disposes itself against sin. No, you don't no. understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that God's, that, that the 
experience in hell and God's displeasure is God's love for his own holiness. No, you are experiencing when you experience the hatred of God, the love of God. Right. And here's a, here's a, here's a perfect analogy I'll give uh, to Rovic as well as others. God's see, the problem is Calvinists really don't take into effect into account that God, the father has no emotions. He's not a human being. He has no human nature. So anytime we read about God the Father's hatred or love, these are anthropomorphisms to understand God's disposition towards human beings and towards sin and towards things like that. And the way I would say it is this, God, you know, is often described as an all-consuming fire, you know, both in a positive and a negative sense. He's always an all-consuming fire. Well, if you put steel in front of fire, steel actually glows and acquires the heat of the fire, right? Like, you know, if a blacksmith is forging a sword, for example, this is a patristic uh, analogy. And that's what happens with uh, those whom God loves. They acquire his fire, so to speak, where, and it doesn't hurt them. Whereas if you were to say, put a wax candle in front of a fire, <laughs> it's gonna melt. And, and this is the same, if we're going to say the fire is God's love, it's simply, it, the, 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 the difference is not the fire of God or God's disposition. It's what happens when you put different things in front of it, right? Yeah. The, the steel acquires the fire, the wax melts. God is not changing. God yeah. is not changing at all. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's what sets before him that naturally occurs. So for a person who is a non-believer and despises God, God is not going to stop loving them because he is love. But they will experience his love as torment and experience yeah. his love as what we might call hatred, right? It's not that God is wanting them to suffer, but because they have rejected him, it it's also has to do a lot with shame as well. You know, you have, if you've ever wronged a friend and you really cared about that friend and then you did something which, which really hurt them, but they still have this loyal love to you and you can't stand to be in their presence because you feel so ashamed of what you've done. That's another aspect to God's wrath as well as being ashamed of your own sin, which you have hurt a loving God who will never stop loving you. Um, so yeah, his, his understanding of hatred is way off here and it doesn't even fit yeah. with the Western father's understanding of yeah the and i mean yeah so when you so god's hatred towards me is god's love towards me that might break yes. your mind um but yeah we do, that's the way the church in synodal conciliarity you know in synodality synodality mutual faith and submission by that's what the it seemed right i'm gonna use this rovic because you need to understand about the power that the church has being entrusted with the oracles of god by jesus it has seemed right to the holy spirit and, and to us it. that this is what the bible means you don't have any right to point to sola scriptura. Right. You you have no such right. So I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna go to uh, what he says about me. He quotes me. He says, 
Um, if you, and this is me speaking, if you said that the totally depraved person is, is, is in a sense aided by God, how could you consistently read John 3.16? For God so loved the world. I mean, you would assume that if what Calvin, Calvinists are saying were true, it would be for God so hated the world that he gave his only begotten son so that God can love them again. No! That's incompatible with the character of God that we see throughout the Bible as a gracious, merciful, and loving God. Justice and wrath is there, but to try and compare this unrighteous justice of mankind with God's justice is probably the biggest sin that can ever be committed in the exegetical journey that Calvinists seek to undertake. So I just you want to clarify. very well by quoting that. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was smirking at, as I'm like, um, he's actually quoting himself. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yes, 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 the point. Um, I will say this and I'll say it again. Yeah. Calvinists, and this is true of watching Paul Washer, the way that I spoke to reformed people, reformed fathers in the faith, and I consider them heretics now, but um, this is what they told me. They told me, they, they always use the analogy of Jesus taking the, his beating for me. God, need, yes. God is angry. God is displeased. God must destroy you because God is holy. holy. And Rovic right. just said that previously. And God must destroy you. In fact, Vodi Baucom says in one of his sermons that, what, that the great thing about the grace of God is that God had to destroy me last night. He had to strike me, but he didn't. I'm sorry, my friend, but... As John Wesley said, the Calvinistic doctrine of God's grace and election is a doctrine that makes the blood run cold. It, it is, is one and, that makes the blood he, run cold. And here he comes, Maverick. Here he comes with the next paragraph. Honestly, this is the part where I begin to doubt Reverend Whitlew's claim that he is a former Calvinist. Okay, stop, Robic. You have no right to make this claim, and you cannot prove it. Just stop, Okay. This is, and it goes on. This is a, this is a cheap polemic. Uh, could have hardly come from one who truly understood what Calvinism teaches concerning the gospel. That's for sure. Okay, Robic, let me give you a perfect example. Because me and Maverick have walked together for a long time, even before we were Orthodox and we were both Calvinists. These are people we listen to: Bodie Bauckham, John MacArthur a little bit, James White, Douglas Wilson, uh, John Piper. I mean, I could go on and on. We've read their books. We've heard their. I mean, sermons, I would even, I would even add Bible studies with their material. Oh, who else would you have? Um, um, A. W. Pink. A. W. Pink. Uh, we've read Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. We've read Martin Luther's Bondage of the Will. We have read all the materials that Calvinists say. Um, Spurgeon was a big one for me. Spurgeon was a big part of my spiritual formation in many ways, when I started to take my faith seriously. We understand Calvinism, Robic, and you cannot tell us otherwise, okay? Here's the, I mean, here's, and here's I mean, the, the <laughs> oh, go ahead, Maverick. The, the fact that I read um, Bavink and all of the reformed divines in Dutch and Afrikaans and in English seems to count nothing here. Um, I'm, I come from a country, South Africa, where the state church and the top reformed scholars in the world, many of them come from South Africa. So I read it in Afrikaans and Dutch. Don't tell me I don't know the very religion that, was the re that, that supported the apartheid regime. I know what it says. Right. And I probably know things that he doesn't know about Calvinism that would make his blood run cold. Some yeah. people that would say he's not a real Calvinist. But anyway. Yeah. So anyway, let's go on. I'm going to 
because he, he's going to hint on some of the things I would like to refute. First off, Calvinism never teaches that God can both hate and love the sinner at the same time and in the same sense. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. That is the entire doctrine of penal substitution in a nutshell. It's like God has a really intense hatred for sin and sinner, and he sort of, in, in, in a lesser sense, wants to forgive them their sin, but he's bound by his own law of justice to punish sin. This is the scary thing about Calvinism, is you have God being subject to his own law. So my question to Calvinists who are watching this, not just Rovic, is how is God's law not God? Because it seems that he, it seems that if he's subject to something, he's no longer God. But anyway, the point is, is that this, I've often heard this, that the cross is where justice and mercy kissed, meaning that God takes out his divine wrath, essentially hell, on sin, on the person of Jesus Christ, and now he can fully forgive us our sins. And look, I'm not making this up. These are demonstrations I've heard from John Piper and others like that. I mean, John Piper, if I, I mean, if I misquote him, I'm sorry, but I'm trying to sum this up best I can. He basically said, and Piper basically makes the, the case that God actually doesn't love sinners. He loves Jesus Christ. And because Jesus loves us and dies for us, therefore he loves us. So God doesn't love you in and of yourself as his created, uh, you know, created creature that was made in his image. He loves Jesus Christ. He, he's essentially a love, in love with himself at the end of the day. That's a scary thought. I'm sorry, but that's a really scary thought. Because as we, as we just said, God, he loves his own glory. And, you know, that's what he thinks I was saying. No, God loves you, Rovic. God loves you. God loves you. And God, um, the, the very things you say God does to his own glory doesn't mean that he, that he, um, that he hates people and wants to see them burn forever and forever and forever. No, God's love will be poured on them forever and forever and forever and forever. That's right. something that I, I think you don't you don't care. May, I, I don't want to say you don't care. Maybe it's you just don't care what Orthodox people believe about this. But you need to understand why we are saying the things that we are. Because until you understand Orthodox theology on this, you won't understand our criticisms. So, right. Yeah, let's go on and see what he says here. Um, what it rather says, and what Scripture says, is that God is said to hate sinners insofar he is justly deposed to get them destroyed. Whereas God is said to love sinners insofar as he is graciously disposed to get them forgiven and reconciled to himself. Just as divine hatred cannot be equated or compared to human emotive counterpart, the same must be said of divine love. So these are not two conflicting subjective emotions of God, but are objective dispositions in relation to his character as both just... So so God isn't simple according to him. According to him, the divine hatred and divine love of God are two different things. So what, he, what he's essentially done here is he's violated an essential Calvinistic doctrine, which they inherited from St. Thomas Aquinas, which is the divine simplicity of God. So and I mean, that. I mean, <laughs> a hateful God. No, no wonder um, you have scholars like N.T. Wright saying that the Calvinistic view of the atonement is cosmic child abuse. Yeah, and he also says that it's more more uh, befitting of a pagan god than it is the god of scripture. And it I is. It is. Um, I'm doing. I, I've I've started doing my uh, rounds on um, 
on Second Temple Judaism and the various uh, pagan cults of the Second Temple before the Second T Temple period and stuff, and that's definitely true. But I I'm going to read this next part. It says. Secondly, in Calvinism and ultimately in Scripture, this divine righteous hatred and merciful love towards sinners made in perfect harmony at Calvary, where There's the righteous. There's what I just said. There's what yeah. I just said, Robic. So, so tell me again. I don't understand Calvinism. I predicted what you said before you even said it. This is the first time I'm reading your article. I've never read it before. I predicted what you were going to say. So tell us again. We don't understand Calvinism. Where for really? us. Where for us, there is no divine righteous hatred, at least not in the way that he thinks it is. Yeah, in, anyway. On the cross, in the cross, it is the pure love of God where yeah. Jesus takes away sin and death. And the love of God is able to flow on Jesus. And Jesus yeah. is able to take away sin and death so that God's love so right. that when sin is taken away, we don't experience the fire of God's love, but the light of God's love. We become like the steel who acquires the fire of God's love, and it doesn't hurt us. And because we have an ontological change, we go from being a figure of wax to a figure of steel. That's why orthodoxy is such an ontological thing. And so it, that Christ in the Calvinist model goes to the cross as a broken, defeated a person who is being, you know, subjected to death by sinful men, and then to add insult to injury, he has the sins of the elect placed upon him, and then God treats him like a sinner. You know, he becomes essentially a broken, defeated sinner on the cross with God's hatred and enmity poured out fully upon him, and he, he, he essentially goes as a victim, whereas in the Orthodox understanding of the cross, Jesus goes to the cross a victor, and his death, though it looks like defeat, crushes sin, death, hell, and the grave, and the devil all at once. And here's the crazy, here's what I tell people. In orthodoxy, your enemy is sin, death, the flesh, the world, and the devil, and the grave. In Calvinism and Protestantism in general, your enemy is God. And I mean, I like to sing the the the, the Paschal uh, on even though we are Western right. But uh, Christ is risen from the dead. Yeah, and the non-denominational trampling down death by by death, and yeah. upon those in the tomb bestowing life. Al Masihi, you come near by Niram Wat. I love the Arabic, but. Be, be that as it may, um, you yeah, know, go <laughs> the, he, he goes on. Um, wait, where, where did I put that article? Okay, here we go. I apologize. So um, right. he says, um, where the righteous penalty of death against the sinner has been fully satisfied and where God's merciful forgiveness in Christ is consequently made available for all who believe. So it's only made for people who believe? No. Um, all people who believe get to participate in that, but... But just like uh, John 1 9 points out, the light which lightens all the world, and where it says that all get to look, anyone who has vision, the image of God, gets to look upon the snake in the desert when it was lifted up. Okay? All who exactly. believe, all who believe simply refers to those who get to participate in the 
um, in the blessed crucifixion. Um, I don't understand how you can say that and say, I would really recommend that if you understand the orthodox doctrine of um, how the incarnation and the cross um, influences and the atonement and how that influences us as Christians and why there's universal grace, I would recommend on the cosmic mystery of Jesus Christ, which is something St. Vladimir has. Um, it's from St. Saint, uh, Saint, um, Maximus the Confessor. So um, Caleb might be smoking because St. Maximus is the guy. He is That's the man. That's your patron saint, yeah. Yep. Um, so he says, this is God's way of vindicating his own justice in justifying sinners by grace, as Paul himself declares in Romans 3, verse 25 to 26. So I'm not exactly sure. Uh, I'm not exactly certain where Reverend Witters allocation of Calvinists comparing the righteous, the unrighteous justice of mankind with God's justice arises from. It arises from the fact that in Calvinism, God needs to beat you up because of his holy anger, um, needs to beat someone up. Someone needs to die. Someone needs to be is, trampled underfoot. Trampled underfoot, the, 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 you know, God needs to destroy someone. That's where it comes from. Um, yeah. This I, is not forgiveness, I, by the way. Yeah. I don't your cake and eating it too. I I don't know a God like that. Um, God doesn't have to do that. The only reason why God's presence is painful for the wicked and why is because of two things: sin and death. Sin and death. Once yeah. sin, once death is cured by the life of God dwelling in us, and sin is taken away by Christ's atonement. God yeah. can love us without that hindrance. So, nice. um, so, so here's the, the last part where he starts to say, I'm not going to read it, but he says, cosmos doesn't really mean all people. He says the word cosmos in scripture, aside from references to the physical earth, universe is actually often used in a limited, definite sense by identifying the whole with a part by way of interpretation, depending on the context in which it is employed. I, I got, I got so, a real yeah. stickler for you, Robic. Yeah. I got a real stickler for you, Robic. What if I told you, Rovig, that Calvin would reject your view entirely? So I'm going to read you a quote from Calvin. This is John Calvin's commentary on John's gospel, referring to 3.15 and 16. Quote, he has employed the universal term whosoever, both to invite all indiscriminately to partake in life and to cut off every excuse from unbelievers. Such is the import of the term world. For though nothing will be found in the world that is worthy of the favor of God, yet he shows himself to be reconciled to the whole world when he invites all men without exception to, the faith, to faith in Christ, which is nothing else than entrance into life. You're really going to tell me that the founder of your system of theology got it wrong? And here's another thing. Um, that's a, that's an error in, and um, it's been pointed out in the society of evangelical um, Armenians. Which, by yeah. the way, j just so that Rovic knows this, back when I was a Calvinist, there is still an article where I defended irresistible grace on that website, where um, they respond to me by name, and it's uh, written against me when I was a Calvinist. So you can say I wasn't a Calvinist, but. There were people writing against me, so there you have it. But, yeah. Um, yeah. And in regards to the word world itself, Calvin further says, quote, The word world is again repeated that no man may think himself wholly excluded. 
showing that he here includes all men in the word world instead of restricting it to to comprise the elect alone. John Calvin's commentary on John's gospel. Yes, yes, yes. Another thing is that um, uh, D.A. Carson has pointed to the illegitimate way Calvin has tried to say that this is only referring to people from all nations or it's only the elect from all nations, things like that. There is no exegetical basis to do that. And D.A. Carson documents this. I read this book a long time ago, but I had to go and recheck it. Read D.A. Carson on the difficult doctrine of the love of God. That, that's, that's what right. I have to say there. So, um, so yeah, that, the, and I mean, it's doing, it's the fallacy of illegitimate totality transfer because you didn't actually prove contextually why it is that the world is not all men. You certainly assumed that it can't be because you say so or whatever. I don't, I mean, I don't have time to, to get into everything, everything, you know, the, the nuances of that. But he also says, Reverend Whitlow might respond here and say, because he gets into the whole thing of me saying that God foreknows a believing, obedient people. Reverend Whitlow might respond here and say that uh, these were so because God saw some godly virtue in both Abraham and David. But what can you make of the evil murderous soul was the chief of all sinners whom God has called by his grace. So here's the problem. Faith in the Messiah, a corporate body. It's not referring uh, with individual merit and stuff. And that's not to mention the fact that, as Chrysostom and many of the fathers say, God foreknows, and I, uh, Craig Truglia, who is a Facebook friend of both uh, Caleb's and I, he has a... He he has a very... uh, I think he's um, under the homophorian of, um, you know, the patriarch of of, of Moscow. Yeah, yeah, I think he's Russian Orthodox. But um, uh, Craig has a two, I can, I, I can send it to you, Rovic. He has a, two articles on patristic exegesis of Romans 9. Um, but my, my response to that would be is that God can also foresee the repentance of that person. So not only does this not even understand what... Re- foreknowledge is god foreknows the whole person past present and future everything there is to know about this person in their lives so i'm not sure how this really does away with what i said secondly given the fact that it is a group of people whom whose destiny is tied by faith to christ's destiny i'm not sure how this even makes sense to bring up um because you just need that participation in him and david repented saul repented and which by the way saul still needed to make a choice it was external means that brought him into the kingdom external means um it, it wasn't because god changed his heart and re- regenerated him in that moment no he was actually blinded and then he believed there were external means that led to his conversion but um, you know, if God could convert this chief of all sinners and if he loves all men equally, then why doesn't he do the same Damascus encounter to all? Because the Damascus encounter to all still presupposed the autonomy of Paul to choose whether or not he wanted to be saved. Yeah. Paul could have remained blinded forever. Yeah. There is nothing to assert this Calvinistic paradigm. Now, God was successful in changing him. Um, by right. external means, but the, the choice is still up to you. Oh, well, right. that's a minute. Yeah. You see, here, here's what the Calvinists will say to that is like, well, now look what you've done. You've got a God that fails. No, you don't. 
here's why, is that God has ordained and has created human beings intrinsically by nature with a free will. For whatever reason, God has sovereignly decided that he will honor the free will of humanity to either cooperate with his grace and attain salvation or reject his grace and not attain salvation. God is not failing at anything. He has ordained to allow man to choose. There yeah. is no failure in that. He is throwing the ball into the human's court to make the choice. He's not losing anything at all. That's the whole point. See, this is the difference between, I'm going to throw a jibe in here, between Calvinistic Protestantism and Orthodoxy. Calvinistic Protestantism basically wants humans to be uh, spiritual infants from the get-go and remain spiritual infants the rest of their life. God does everything for you and expects nothing out of you because you can't lose your salvation. Perseverance of the saints, right? And it's like, in Orthodoxy, God expects you to grow up. <laughs> yeah. So that's essentially it. It's so he says the idea that God loves all men equally is not only a scriptural, but it's also counterintuitive. Now, there are two points here. The fact is you don't understand the simplicity of God. The fact that God is love. And also you don't understand that loving God in the same way. Again, I don't know what that means because you're speaking about the uncreated energies of God, about the mysterious nature of God. But God does love all people. Get over yeah. it. And yeah. I am sorry, Rovic, but I need to take the stand here because your deposit... What you are teaching now is not what the apostles gave to the, to, to the church. Right. And, and you might say that's not, that's not scriptural. And, and so here's the deal. When, when, people were when people were arguing, when the saints were arguing against the Gnostics, they didn't appeal against, to scripture alone. They appealed to the fact that this is not what they received in the apostolic chrism, in the apostolic yeah. tradition. We know that Gnostics are not truly Christian, because that's not what we received. We know you, as a Calvinist, yeah. do not believe the truth, because that is not what we have received. Point. That's exactly it. And, and I would say to you, Rovic, you need to read the early Apostolic Fathers, seriously, especially Irenaeus of Lyons. I would recommend you read St. Read Irenaeus of Lyons, two works. One is really short. It's called On the Apostolic Preaching. And the other one, that's a very long work, is called Against Heresies. They were both written against the Gnostics. And here's what you will find. You will find that the case which Irenaeus makes against the Gnostics is never my interpretation of Scripture is right and theirs is wrong. He admits fully that the Gnostics know Scripture very, very well. He said the difference is who holds to the apostolic teaching concerning the scriptures. That is what where he draws the line. He does not say, oh, let me properly exegete the Greek for you in the Gospel of Matthew or in the Epistle to the Romans. No, he says, we know they're wrong because their teaching does not match what the apostles taught. Irenaeus, just to give you how close he was to the apostles, his teacher was Polycarp of Smyrna, and Polycarp of Smyrna's teacher was John himself, the apostle John the Beloved. So here's the, and here's the thing. If you're going to say, well, those guys could have got it wrong, those guys could, or, or you, what you would probably say as a Calvinist is that most of them got it wrong. 
Well, I want to ask you this. What is logically logical or wise about accepting the word of a lawyer who was likely never ordained a priest uh, versus someone who lived closer to the time of Jesus and closer to the time of the apostles and could read and understand Greek? If I'm not mistaken, Maverick, tell me if I'm right or wrong about this. Did Calvin, did Calvin even read Greek? Well, I know that Augustine didn't. Augustine, Augustine um, didn't. was oh. very, were very, very bad. In fact, he didn't know. He thought that he was on the same page as St. John Chrysostom. But as Father Josiah Trenum in his um, Rock and Sand pointed out, um, it's all just, he just went by wishful thinking. So I really want to read this because... <laughs> because Rovic is taking issue with something that I got from Father Patrick Henry Reardon's commentary on Romans. Okay, so, he actually he actually could read Greek. It says Calvin learned Koine Greek, but still. But anyway. but, but 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 yeah. Now Reverend Whitlow would have us to believe that God foresaw the wickedness Adam Esau would choose and hated it. Likewise, God foresaw Jacob's faith and obedience, and knew Jacob would serve his purposes. But why would Paul? By, by the way, he's not quoting me. That's taken from Father Patrick Henry Reardon's commentary on Romans. So, uh, um, But why would Paul even bother to emphasize the fact that divine choice was made even before the children were born? Because that's what foreknowledge is. That's what foreknowledge yeah. is. It, right. If it predates the actual knowing, that's what foreknowledge is. And, even let's, just, yeah. and let's just be honest here, Deacon Maverick. The word foreknowledge does not mean God went and picked something in advance. It literally means to know in advance of something. Yeah. That is yeah. all it means. So the, the only thing that he's pointing out here is that God's election of one group and the other group does not depend on any, you know, I, I agree. It doesn't depend on, um, on their paradigm. It depends on God's paradigm. God is, God can save whomever he wants to. So if God wants to save it because of his own reasons, God gets to do that. So I also, and I mean, listen to this, the apostolic emphasis aren't there, um, uh, sorry, the apostolic emphasis is, aren't there for nothing. In fact, the succeeding flow of Paul's argument renders Reverend uh, Wetlow's humanistic interpretation as, as false because in verse 14, the apostle anticipates a philosophical objection against divine justice in choosing Jacob over Esau. Firstly, I'm not a humanist, and I would say that consistently that Reform theology is humanistic. It is rationalistic. Um, yeah, it's from the Scholastic said, School, the same school that Thomas Aquinas was from. You're, you're what shall, and I mean, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to answer this. What shall we say then is the in righteousness with God? Certainly that. Think for a second. Why would the apostle anticipate this obje objection? Again, go to the beginning of the chapter. God would be unrighteous or un unrighteous because God is, is um, turning his back, so to speak, on the Israelites. God is, God is going by his own paradigm and not by the paradigm that, that where he can do whatever he wants to. And so they say, that's unrighteous, God, because you are um, doing all of these things without considering the promises you made to Esau. 
You know, Esau has a birthright, and so how can you allow Esau to, how can you, you, you know, you use Esau for that purpose? And why would you allow Jacob to, to go a certain way with it? Well, God gets to do that. That's the point. Um, and what, what does Jacob's name mean again? Uh, Jacob's... Uh, it literally means, like, heel grabber. So it has the idea of being an ankle biter or a deceiver. Yeah, yeah, deceiver. You, yeah, and that, that's the point. Yeah, and and, and that's the point. Yeah, yeah, that's the point. I just needed needed to make sure. But why would God? Why would you give your grace to the deceiver, um, and not to Esau who had the birthright? That's the and point. Legally had the birthright. Yeah. And so that's the point. God is unrighteous because he does this. No, he's not. Because God has his own paradigm. God is not bound to our own ways of thinking. God can do whatever he wants to. Absolutely. Um, so here, yes. Here's another thing I want to point out to Calvinists. You ever hear Calvinists who say, God is under no obligation to have mercy, grace, or spare anyone, right? Well, mm -hmm. here's the thing. We as Orthodox Christians would not disagree with that. But here's the problem. It's a half-truth. You know what the other part they leave out is? What? God is under no obligation to punish, destroy, or kill the sinner either. Mm-hmm. It, so, it has to be both true. That's a half-truth that and he said, people. So, I mean, I'm just kind of, and I mean, this is kind of dismissive, you know, humanistic interpretation. Look, do, 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 do. You don't want to know what I have to say to people who say things like that about me. Take no. your left hand, you know, I, I don't want to want to go, <laughs> oh, no. go down that He's route. Do He's going to do it. No, He's no, no. no I, I know I'm not triggered enough. Um, okay. This is okay. this is precisely what calls for the polemic inquiry in verse 14 concerning the fairness of God. Look, Rovic, says who? Says you? No. The way John Chrysostom, the way John Cassian, the way that Maximus Confessor, the way the, the way every saint has dealt with this in the Orthodox tradition um, is not the way you're saying it is. This is not how the church dealt with it. And why did it have to come only after God, Chokhov, or Bay, St. Prosper of Aquitaine? Why did we need to wait for these people to tell us about this passage? I, I don't yeah. know why. So um, you got so, the Holy Spirit dropping the ball for almost 1,500 years. And, and, basically yeah, and this is why God can then say, I have mercy on whom I will have mercy. You need to understand the paradigm here. That's taken from um, the Old Testament. Exodus. Yeah. Yes, Exodus. Um, yes, God can have mercy on whom he has mercy. Um, and so it doesn't depend on the him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. So here it is. God can have mercy on whom he wants. That's all it's saying. I don't know why it has to mean what you Calvinists are saying. I have, I, I mean, I cannot even begin to understand why that would be the case. I really don't. Yeah. Um, and... Around 1650, in, into his podcast, Reverend Whitlow suggests that the point of passage is simply that God has the freedom to set his terms on who to justify and who not to justify. This interpretation, however, is utterly disconnected to the point that Paul is trying to make because it isn't about justification but sovereign election. Look, Rovic, you are inconsistent. You said this passage is about salvation, but now you're saying it isn't about salvation. And the moment you try to to say this isn't about salvation, then you try to take the flow of argument about who the covenant people of God is in chapter 8 and making it absolutely obsolete. 
Either this passage of election is about salvation and therefore election, or it's not. Justification and election, as I pointed out, is integral to the idea of what Paul is speaking about. So, mamma mia, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I have to, I have to, I have to really wonder why anyone would say these kind of things. And he says, so I'm going to, want to respond to this. Reverend Whitlow consistently attempts to turn Paul, Paul's entire argument on its head by inserting the idea of human merit at every turn. No. Again, I don't believe in merit. Um, I don't believe that it's meritorious to have faith, all of that kind of stuff. Your paradigm, your Protestant problems, that's not mine. Your circus, your monkeys, Rovic. So whatever effort we have, whether it's works of the law or whatever we want to do, guess what? Those things do not set the paradigm for God. Exactly. Because faith and mercy and grace, they are on one side of the paradigm that we've been speaking about on the other side. Faith is never seen on the same level as works of the law. So, yeah. I would also say this, and this is what I said. We are, not, we are bound to the sacraments of God. We have to have faith. We need to approach God in a certain way. God doesn't have the same obligation towards us. Yes, because you see, just because the Israelites, because the Israelites had old covenant sacraments, old covenant rites, they had to do those things and they had to be faithful towards it. We have to have faith. Doesn't mean that God is, you know, uh, limited to what the way we approach him in order to extend his grace towards us. But where is this found in Romans 9? As I said, you need to understand that they were entrusted the, the oracles of God. You need to understand what we have just said before this. Remember that we are talking about the basis and ground of divine election of some people unto salvation. Look, there he does it again. You just said this isn't about justification, but this is about election, but it, it's, it's not this and it's not... Do, 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 do. I really don't know what it is you're trying, the point you're trying to make. Because it seems like you are desperately trying to impose a Calvinistic paradigm on this passage. Because the question of Romans 9 is not, you know, are we chosen to salvation by God's unconditional election or not? This is not a treatise in systematic Calvinistic theology. The point of Romans 9 is to answer how can God be just whilst turning his back on a certain people that he promised to be faithful to and then extend it to Gentiles. That's the problem. That's the problem. And it really makes me, again, my, my, my beard is starting to itch and it usually itches when... Um, when I need to listen to things which are completely unsubstantiated, because you're just making assertions. There's no exegetical... Yeah, I, I mean, you, you know what I'm saying. Um, the necessity of the sacraments and faith and our approach to God in a certain way are the outworking of divine election, not the cause of it. Well, if you deal with Kairos and Kronos time in the way that you do, sure, you would say that. Reverend uh, Whitlow puts the cart before the horse by making our virtue and godliness the basis of God's choice of us. But as I said, Christ is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. I, I didn't say this now, but we have what is known as the Eucharistic sacrifice, where we actually participate of the timeless work of Christ, which happened before time in our service. This isn't chronological time, which is linear time, like um, 
one minute to the next minute, but it's imminent time, eternal time of eternity. We enter into the eternity. Therefore, what we do in the now is relevant to what is in eternity. You couldn't understand it because, and I mean, I, I don't want to say this, but if I speak to you of earthly things, you wouldn't understand it. Why would you understand heavenly things? Because this is, um, I, you need to be one of us to understand what we're saying here. And really, repent of the ungodliness of the rebellious reformation and the rejection of the synodal conciliar position of the church. You, you must not use scripture as a personal sounding board of what sounds rational. Yeah. Yeah. If you're going to, if you're going to appeal to rationality, this is where, and this, I don't mean this to sound insulting. And I know me and Deacon Maverick have been kind of fired up at some points and, and Rovic, this is not necessarily towards you as an individual person, but the thing is you're echoing the same nonsense that we get all the time, which is why we get fired up at things like this. So, you know, the thing is, if you're going to deviate or, well, not deviate, if you're going to put all your eggs in the basket of logic and rationality into, into what makes God sovereign or what makes God just and things like that, sadly, you have more in common with an atheist than you do most early Christians. You really do. Um, if God has to be totally rational and totally logic and totally fit within uh, you know, our understanding and have nothing contradictory or nothing seemingly paradoxical or anything like that, you have essentially put yourself in the same hermeneutical approach that atheism does when it criticizes Christianity. Simple as that. There's no room for mystery or no room uh, for any sort of uh, deviation from the logical, rational, uh, Aristotelian model. And sadly, that's your Western problem, not ours. So I, I just want to read one point, and then I want to read a passage. But he says, Reverend Whitlow, due to his denial of total depravity, which, by the way, I just want to say, this is a new doctrine in the history of the church. This is not apostolic doctrine. Due to his denial of total depravity, he wishes to, to, to ascribe to himself the natural power to believe apart from the sovereign work of God. But Paul says this is tantamount to pride. It is tantamount to saying it is what makes you differ from the lost isn't God's grace. It is tantamount to saying that you possess the virtues that are not given to you by God. Such a state of affairs cannot be the praise to the glory of his grace. Again, a lot of assumptions here. Yeah. But we actually understand that the image of God hasn't been eradicated. And when you understand what St. Maximus the Confessor says about the liberating nature of the light of Tabor, um, we, we celebrate the transfiguration where it is God's grace and his uncreated energies that is rendered present through that transfiguration where the grace of God in a sense bleeds the kingdom of God bleeds into the now and where participation in that humbling yourself to the divine will of God is what is necessary you need to understand that because God gives grace to the humble and he resists the proud okay so I must humble myself that's salvation and I did a, a post on this on my blog um, Jesus is Jesus is a synergistic person. The, yes. the, the nature of God, the nature of man works together. Jesus in his divinity 
uh, in his humanity must subject himself to the divine will of God. It is not rejecting God's grace. Um, and I mean, I, I could get into a discussion, maybe we can do that next time on what, why we don't believe in total depravity. But man has yeah. an image of God, and this is why in Romans 7 is one of the reasons I don't believe in total depravity. But Paul speaks about how people always are doing what, planning on doing what is right. They always desire, they delight in God's law in the inner man, but they are unable to do the very things that they desire to do. And so the things they don't do, they do, and the things that, you know, that they want to do, they don't want to do, they do. That's the problem. Absolutely. We need to humble ourselves in that state and say, this is not total depravity. We need to say, we need the grace of God. We need, we still have the ability to choose. This isn't total depravity. And everything is of the, of the grace of God, but I can choose to cooperate with it or not. That right. isn't, that isn't taking, that, that is to the praise of the glory of his grace. Because the glory of his grace is that God isn't forcing me, only choosing certain people, but that God is standing and he is embracing. He is sending out his love. And I have the choice to either go to the disposition of Adam and the disposition of Christ. That's the point here. I don't accept this caricature that I, you know, this is your own paradigm. It's your own paradigm that you've set on. And you've defined about, you defined what I need to believe about God's grace. And I'm saying, no, 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 no. The church gets to define that. It doesn't matter what you say. Yeah. The Holy Spirit is who, you know, works through the church. See, that's the problem is Calvinists think the Holy Spirit only speaks through the Bible. And unfortunately, or, or through their pastor who interprets the Bible. But the fact is, they have a And yeah, and I mean, uh, he, go, he goes through Pharaoh, yes. Um, but the, the thing is, you know, Pharaoh, um, he was hardened by God. Um, I, I do believe that's what the passage is saying. Uh, now we can get into that. But um, I raised you up, your pertains to Pharaoh's creation of birth, as if to say I've created you, whereas other prefer to take it to mean I have made you king. Exegetically, I think the former is primarily meant here, considering the previous examples given by Paul about God's purpose having been before Isaac, Jacob, and Esau born. In other words, all previous examples about pre-birth purposes determined by God, and I can see no reason why Paul would suddenly divert from that line in verse 17. I have raised you up. I think what this verse is saying is quite clear. God has the intention of choosing people for whatever purpose. We have been chosen as a people, part of a group, for God's purposes, to take his uh, group, uh, to take, show his name among all the world, you know, and, and, and so on and so forth. But I, I don't see anything here that really substantiates the Calvinist position. I'm not going to respond to this because this is sort of irrelevant to me. Um, I, I think I've s said a lot. Um, I mean, there, there's a lot of assumptions here. Um, right. And there's one thing I want to point out in this article that I find to be just, you know, like, let me see if I can find it real quick. Yeah, it's right here. It's where he quotes you. It says, around the 1825 mark of his podcast, Reverend Whitlew says, does this mean Pharaoh was forced by God to do this? No, no one was forced to do this. And then, and then a, our author here says, and I say, amen. 
Neither does Calvinism teach that God forces people to behave and act a certain ways against their own will, kicking and screaming. When God hardens Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh freely and simultaneously hardens his own heart too. We see this in Exodus 9, 12. I would take issue with that. Calvin does not, did not seem to believe that. He believed that God was the author of evil. I mean, how, how could you not say that Calvin didn't believe that? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to find the quote, but yeah, there is an actual quote where, where Calvin is very, very clear when he says that, um, oh wait, here it is. So when he says that, you know, that God, to say that God simply permits evil is basically absurd. God is the author of evil. I mean, he actually says that, you know what I mean? It's yeah. Like, come on. This is not, this is, I mean, you know, Calvinists have this job of where they have to kind of be the PR person for John Calvin. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm sorry, but that just doesn't work that way. You know, it's like, no, 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 no. So, no. I mean, we can get into whether or not Pharaoh, but there is something that I would like to respond to. He said, um, um, if Paul were a man exalting humanness, we would expect his response to go something like, hold on, okay, God is, is not exactly that sovereign because we may actually resist his purposes, you know. Not surprisingly, Reverend Whitlow expresses the same thought around 1910 of his podcast when he commented on Romans 9:19, saying, here's the thing, Paul could have, Pharaoh could have resisted, he could have not repented and have his faith just to save himself, he could have done that. You see, Whitlow really hasn't done any proper exegesis of Romans 9, except to consistently turn it on its head at every turn. Again, Ravik, that's what you say. That's not what the church fathers say. And I mean, and, that and this Ravik, is just... Yeah. And, and Ravik, here, yeah. you believe me what I said earlier about Calvin. I just found the quotes. I had to go through some of my old posts. But listen, here's Calvin's New Testament commentary. He says, Quote, God has no doubt decreed before the foundation of the world what he would do with every one of us and has assigned to everyone by his secret counsel of uh, counsel part in life, his part in life, meaning the person he's subjected. Here's another one from God's, uh, or this is uh, from John Calvin's work, The Eternal Predestination of God. It says from, quote, from, thi from this, it is easy to conclude how foolish and frail is the support of divine justice afforded by the suggestion that evils come to be not by God's will, but merely his permission. Of course, so far as they are evils, which men perpetrate with their evil mind, as I shall show in greater detail shortly, I admit that they are not pleasing to God, but it is quite frivolous, a frivolous refuge to say that God permits them when scripture shows, shows God not only willing but also the author of them, okay? If that's not enough, here's one more. This is a quote from Calvin's Bible commentary. Insomuch as God elects some and passes by others, the cause is not to be found in anything else but his, God's own purpose. Before men are born, their lot is assigned to each of them by the secret will of God. The salvation or the perdition of men depends on his free election. Corroborate all that, all that evidence, Robic. You cannot say that Calvinism yeah. does not teach that God uh, does not force anybody to do evil. The game is rigged. God chose who he would damn and who he would save before he even spoke the world into existence. It's inescapable. This is the fatalism talked about 
in the play uh, known as, uh, oh, what is it? What, what, what's the syndrome that people have? Uh, it's the king that blotted out his own eyes. The name is escaping me for the moment. I don't know why. Um, Oedipus. Oedipus Rex. This is the idea of you can't escape your fate. This is exactly what So I, I want to read Matthew 13, 15. For this yeah. people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. So what is this verse saying? People have the ability to repent for their own um, for their own convenience. That's what Matthew 13 verse 15 is saying. It's not saying that they that they are totally depraved. It's saying they might, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears and understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. And God is saying, no, I'm going to give them up to their hardening. I'm going to let them be hardened. I'm going to harden them so that they cannot repent from this. Meaning they had the power to repent. And this is, this is what I'm, I'm assuming. And I'm sorry, uh, Ravik, but if you expect me to have my Greek and stuff open, I mean, I could do that. I could go through the different passages. I just don't have time to do that. But I mean, listen to this. I mean, it kind of makes me, do you really want me to reply to this? Listen what he says. Um, Suffice it is for now as a conclusion that as much as I admire Reverend Whistler's passion and sincerity, his treatment on Romans 9 turns out utterly disappointing. Imagine reading Calvin's Institutes and interpreting it through an Arminian lens to make it like mean the exact, done, the exact opposite of what it means. And describe how ex exegetically horrible that episode podcast was. Well, I, I really am going to pray for you, Rovic, but no. Yeah, well, here, here's the thing. Oh, look, look at this. Look, look at this. Um, he says, um, Paul says, God is sovereign over Pharaoh's choices. I never denied that. Never did. I'm just saying that there's a specific way that God dealt with this. Reverend Whitlow goes, nah, poor eisegesis. Right. Let me, let me tell you something, Rovic. You made uh, this statement. Imagine someone reading Calvin's Institutes and interpreting it through an Arminian lens to make it mean the exact opposite of what it means. You are a hypocrite, sir. I'm sorry. Maybe you're unintentionally a hypocrite, but you are, in fact, a hypocrite. You did the same thing with Maverick's podcast. We are Orthodox Christians. You took, you took this is like reading an Orthodox book and bringing a Western, Western theological paradigm to make it mean the exact opposite of what it means. You assumed so many things about Deacon Maverick and I's theology that we hold to. It's not our theology, it's the theology of the church for the past 2,000 years. And then you accuse us of this, that, and the other. You are doing the very thing you accuse us of doing. You are what you eat, sir. The other thing is that, uh, let's see, I guess that's what happens when you force your humanistic philosophy into an inherently God-centered book such as the Bible. I could say, actually, that is you. Calvin's theology is a humanistic philosophical system. It is. I'm sorry. You I mean, unapologetically a Thomist. And I mean, really, Rovick's problem here is um, with not me, but he's 
problem is with those of us who, with Father Patrick Henry Reardon, his issue is with um, St. John Chrysostom, who is the Prince of Preachers. Um, his issue is with St. Maximus the Confessor. His, promise, his, his problem is with um, St. John Cassian. His problem is with um, every saint, every Cappadocian. Um, and even Augustine agreed with, agreed with me on many of these issues. In fact, yes. Augustine changed his perspective on these passages in the Pelagian controversies. And I mean, the Pelagian controversies are relevant to us. Um, so I, I kind of had to scratch my head and be like, uh, it's kind of like, pump, you know that uh, that Lithuanian uh, Slavic uh, pop singer. I, I I think he's from Russia or something. Yeah. Like that's what my mind was doing because I cannot even believe yeah. that I'm being. I mean the, the I mean the the condescending tone of humanistic philosophy. I mean, talk about false witness. Um, yeah. I mean. It doesn't get worse than that. Um, not invert. Paul addresses the philosophical objection. Why does he fi find fault for who resisted his will? Not pro providing an elaborate philosophical explanation. Nor by defining, uh, redefining re divine sovereignty to excite, exalt the idol of human free will. I mean, if you're going to say that the that the view that humans have free will oh. is idolatrous you aren't going to have many people in the church to read. You're just not. For the first, for the first 1,500 years of the church's um, life. Look, I, I, I just want to say this, Rovic, maybe revise what you've read in here, but when you, when you come with things like the idol of human free will and stuff, you just, I mean, I kind of just have to wonder whether or not I want to speak to you because this is the kind of comments that makes me tired. It makes me, you know, yeah, I'm just not going to go through with that. Um, yeah, it makes us not even want to engage seriously with you because it, it, it's a I mean, attack that we've heard a thousand times before. And most people who make that attack are just immature. <laughs> um, the other thing I would say is uh, just as an English professor, because that's yeah. what I am, um, you naming a section the Potter's Freedom, I know what you were hinting at. I know that book very well by James White. Oh, I, I read that book that. a while back, yeah. so... You might want to consider changing that section before you get sued it, for it says he's a, it, so says you know. he's a, it says he's a Southern Baptist, so, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is funny. Most people in the Southern mean, Baptist Convention don't agree. Most of, most of what we said in the beginning of this, um, this lengthy treatise on the this whole issue of election was answered by i think the beginning we just had to look over some of the things that he said but he doesn't understand i mean i'm not gonna probably respond again but um i mean i'd love to chat to him i'd love to speak to him face to face um i just yeah, yeah I, I i i'm not sure though um yeah so yeah this is uh, you know, here's the thing, Rovic. If you care to write another response to this, here's what I would suggest you do. Take you some time, some considerable time. I don't mean like a week. I don't mean a month. I mean possibly a full year 
to actually understand orthodox theology before you do because, so. Because because he might bring off our backs like water on a duck's back. Because Sorry. he might uh, I mean he might respond again and it's just like uh, at that point we're really not going to care if you don't understand orthodox theology. I so, mean I'm I you know here's the thing. I thought that he knew something about orthodoxy. I, you know, love believes the best. I really thought that Rovik, you understood what orthodoxy believes, that we not, don't. Um, you know, that he would under, that he would actually use our categories to communicate with us. Uh, maybe use some of the fathers. I mean, please don't do that um, because it, it's not going to be good. Um, I, I, I can guarantee it probably wouldn't be, but. In order to understand our position, you must actually, you need to understand the liturgy, the fact that we are not systematic. Um, I'm going to try to send him, uh, the, because I agree with everything there, um, but the things that you are concerned with when it comes to Romans 9 are just not the concerns of John Chrysostom and all of the church, and most of the church fathers. I mean, maybe Augustine would agree with me, but um, yeah. Yeah. So there you go. All right, Deacon Maverick. Well, I got to get back to uh, my daughter here in a minute, but it's been yeah. a pleasure being able to do this particular podcast live yeah. in person. So, yeah, we we actually need to do use uh, because I think we should start using YouTube a lot often. Uh, so. I think so. I think so. It won't be anything fancy, but we'll guarantee that the conversation will be lively for sure. Um, for those of you who are here, I have a couple of announcements I would like to make, if that's okay, Deacon Maverick, concerning yeah. both of us. So Deacon Maverick, on October the 1st, has a debate uh, with a Calvinist over the nature of justification of which yours truly will uh, be... Limited, a, l limited atonement. Limited atonement, yeah. which, yeah, which goes... It writes. <laughs> that's right, I know, I know. Deacon Magic will be having a debate with... Jeremiah body on uh, limited atonement. Uh, so this is going to be rather interesting. This is this is again where you're probably going to have a Calvinist talking past an Orthodox person. But anyway, we'll see what happens. Um, and I also have a publicly moderated debate coming up, which will be broadcast on YouTube uh, through a channel of a friend of mine. Uh, the channel is called Free Indeed. Uh, it's called Free Free Indeed Ministries. Um, the person who runs it is not going to be, a, was, was originally going to do the debate, and I was going to be uh, an excited fly on the wall to watch the debate, but he's unable to do it, so he called on me as his replacement, and uh, so uh, I will be debating an Anabaptist apologist over pacifism. So this is going to be an interesting debate. This is one of those topics I'm very passionate about. So you'll be seeing me on the flip side as well. So two debates for the both of us. And my debate will be on uh, September the 26th at 7 p.m. Central Time on Freed Indeed podcast. Yeah. So let's, let's uh, do a prayer um, if yeah. you want to do that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I'm going to do the, you know, the, the, the prayer of the Holy Spirit, and then maybe Caleb can 
wonderful that ever, the Dale Mary and the um, prayer of the Holy Spirit. So comforter, the spirit of truth, what everywhere present and fullest all things. Treasury of good gifts and giver of life, come and abide in us and cleanse us from every stain, O gracious one. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Amen. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost be with us all evermore. Amen. 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 Peace out. On the flip side. Peace out. Cheers. And 